As the United States crossed yet another pandemic milestone, San Diego County once again avoided further COVID-19 restrictions. By a literal decimal point, the region remains in the second most restrictive COVID-19 tier. Still, it's been six months of this. Illness, pain, and suffering for almost 7 million Americans, more than 200,000 losing their fight, and those with their health trapped in a void of uncertainty. Here's a look back at how the region has handled the pandemic and a glimpse of what is yet to come. For the San Diego Union-Tribune, I'm Daniel Wheaton, and this is your San Diego News Fix. Paul Sisson, you cover health for the San Diego Union-Tribune, and you've been covering this from the beginning. So let's start with the newest news, which is the fact that we're still on the same tier. How do we avoid going purple? Yeah, your intro kind of blew my hair back uh, there a little bit. Uh, You know, it it is, uh, you know... Both something very new and it feels a little uh, like Groundhog Day, as we discussed before we came on here. Uh, Today, we got the state's latest uh, weekly uh, every Tuesday report giving us our San Diego's place in the tier structure that the the state government has put together. Uh, And so our score, as you say, by just one tenth of uh, one case, uh, average case per 100,000 residents has remained in what they call the red tier, which is one from the bottom which is where we started out a few weeks ago. Uh, so as a result of this, we, we won't fall down a tier and, and risk businesses having to move back outdoors, especially restaurants, um, places of worship, gyms, et cetera. So, so it's good news uh, for a lot of different organizations today, but there's still a lot of discontent out there in terms of you know, folks feeling like they're getting jerked around a little bit by this system where every week you're on pins and needles. Uh, oh, my gosh, uh, we're going to look for the numbers to move ever so slightly in one direction or another. And that's going to decide our fate. There, there is a lot of frustration uh, with that situation. and You could really feel it out in front of the county administration building yesterday uh, where Jim Desmond met with a lot of very frustrated small business owners who, who are saying, you know, we just uh, we've had enough. We, we can't take this uh, this numbers game anymore. Mm hmm. And can you characterize just kind of how close the region was to being in the purple tier? Because it seems like over the past like whole week, it's been a we're almost there, we're there kind of go back and forth thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, I felt like I've been living inside a spreadsheet uh, for the last week or so where we're looking every night at the latest uh, cases that have come in and seeing which of them fell into this uh, seven day window that's lagged about a week behind reality and trying to do this criminology where we're, we're adjusting little factors and trying to figure this out. We we were very, very close. You know, we had one week already in the bag that was uh, over the threshold of seven cases per 100,000 residents. And if we had done that again this week, then we would have fallen to the purple tier. There was a big push last week to try to get San Diego State students pulled out of those calculations. Uh, but the, the state really held firm and said, no, we're not going to do that. You guys are going to have to... Uh, you know, deal with what comes. Uh, and so, you know, we were we were quite close. Uh, really, if you look at the numbers and, and the numbers that, that uh, San Diego State put out late last week, it looks like their contact tracing efforts really did a pretty good job of bringing that thing under control of, you know, the, the cases were growing up and then they come right back down. And, and we know that they were really intensely focusing on these kids and telling them to stay home and putting them in quarantine and, and putting them in isolation. And it sure looks like it worked. Mm-hmm. And looking at kind of the trends broadly, where are we? Because it's it's like all of these things with COVID-19 in the past several weeks or even the past month, it does seem like we're in this sort of stasis. So can you characterize kind of the broader trends of where the outbreak is now? Yeah, I mean, I think I think we have made a, a lot of progress, like we said, especially in this contact tracing 
um, exercise that goes on when somebody tests positive they, they call them as quickly as they can they try to find out exactly who their close contacts were they, they try as quickly as they can to contact those people and tell them to self-quarantine uh, for two weeks uh, to avoid spreading the disease i think that that is an area where we have made some progress additionally treating people who do get this uh, we see a greater use of steroids and beta blockers uh, that seem to be bringing down the severe hospitalizations you know we've gone a, a lot of months now where hospitalizations uh, have been significantly less both in the state and in the county and in the u.s uh, so so it seems like there is some progress there but I, and you know at, at the same time it, it feels like their stasis on this desire to get back to our normal lives. Uh, you know, they, they, um, they haven't made it easy to go out to, uh, to dinner with your, with your friends or to uh, enjoy a lot of the activities that you might have enjoyed before. And nobody's been to a concert or a, or a large gathering in so long. And, and in a city like San Diego that likes to be outside uh, and likes to, likes to have fun, uh, you know, it just really feels like uh, a never-ending unbreaking mm -hmm. and as i said earlier it's been six months of this uh 200 americans have died and of course those on the front lines including you know board of supervisors wilma wooten people in hospitals working to save lives when you interview these people how are they doing how are they holding up because this has been a real marathon yeah, you know, they're holding up pretty well, I'd say. Uh, the, these folks are professionals, and, um, you know, this is certainly the uh, most stressful uh, thing that they've probably seen in their careers. Uh, but they, they all seem relatively, or, or quite, I, I should say, dedicated to to their jobs that they're doing. And uh, we, we had a nice story in today's paper uh, by Pam Cragen and Gary Worth that talked to uh, Dr. Wooten, the county's uh, public health director, and she talked about, you know, just just feeling responsible for this community. And, uh, you know, she's been under attack quite a bit uh, for the decisions that she's made. And she she seems very resolute uh, in terms of just ignoring the criticism and focusing on what she knows her job to be, uh, you know, and, and whether you agree with exactly how she's prosecuted this or not, it's hard not to admire that kind of uh, resoluteness when, when we're six months in and, and we're not really sure where the, the end posts are here, where the goalposts are. Mm -hmm. Certainly. And it, it does seem like that after that second shutdown, the number of daily cases reported, not necessarily episode dates, has been kind of in this consistent, like, low 200s at most, maybe 350 to 400. And it seems like we're almost at this strange plateau, which I imagine for them is frustrating, given just how long it's been. Right, right. I mean, you don't you don't see many signs of frustration at the at the weekly press conferences. Uh, you don't see anybody pounding on the podium and uh, and losing their cool. Um, but yeah, you know it's been a grind. Uh, you know the, these folks are often working seven days a week uh, and have been for six months. Um, so yeah, fatigue I'm sure does set in. Uh, you know and um, I mean, they're they're like as you say, we've had this this bit of a plateau. We we had a spike a few months ago now in June, uh, in early July. Um, now we we feel like we're kind of in this steady state. Um, I guess we're still all waiting for for the other shoe to drop on Labor Day weekend. Um, mm. Just got off the phone with a source at the county who said, you know, so far, and we're we're coming into the end of the incubation period here from Labor Day weekend. Uh, they haven't really seen any kind of big surge coming. So 
you know, that's surprising to me. I thought that we might for sure see a, a Labor Day spike, but shows what I know, right? Yeah, I mean, maybe it took several holidays of us making the mistake to finally realize that, you know, it is possible to do socially distant gatherings, meet in a park, say six feet apart, and, you know, still have that social interaction without, you know, having increased risk of transmission. I mean, it's not perfect, but it's something. Yeah, you know, I'm going sport fishing with my uh, my dad and my brother-in-law and my nephew on on Saturday, and it's going to be a socially distanced uh, uh, sport fishing trip where we're all going to be six feet apart from each other at the rail on that boat. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been sport fishing, but on these uh, open party boats, you're usually in there, you know, a foot away from each other. Uh, to to go sport fishing uh, with some some elbow room is actually going to be maybe kind of nice. Yeah, and not to mention all that wind, you know, that, that helps too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And also, uh, yesterday we spoke to Gary Robbins about uh, the spike at San Diego State University and how UC San Diego is planning a different strategy, much more uh, contact tracing and testing. Uh, Have you heard any uh, words of concern from leaders that this may cause yet another spike? Because those numbers from SDSU were a big reason why we, you know, got flagged two weeks ago. Yeah, I haven't really heard much concern in terms of increased testing among the student body. Um, I think I think most people just feel like it's necessary to really understand what's going on there. And, and I think the leaders feel like they've managed to surround this problem in terms of getting people quarantined and then the university's ability to check back in with those people who are, and make sure that they're actually abiding the quarantine rules. Uh, you know, that's something that you don't always see in the general population. You don't necessarily see an ability to have such intense follow-up. Uh, but with the university, they know who these kids are. They know where they live. Uh, they, you know, they have an ability to check up with them very frequently. Uh, so I think that might be why I haven't really heard a lot of concern about a huge spike coming out of SDSU related to additional testing. Mm-hmm. Certainly. And one of the things that um, has been uh, frustrating a lot of reporters at other outlets has been the issue of outbreaks, which the county has released a lot of information about it. Voice of San Diego and KPBS are suing, and they've said that they may reconsider the outbreak metric. Uh, is there any developments on that, or is that kind of where it remains? I think that that's where it remains at the moment. You know, I think two weeks ago, they released a list of every outbreak in the county, but they took off all of the locations. Uh, they, they redacted all that information. So that really didn't satisfy anybody. The county's take is, look, uh, you know, we need to protect, protect these locations so that people will tell us the truth about what's going on. Uh, we, we see no, uh, no public purpose in, in putting a crosshairs on every place that's had an outbreak. Um, the public feels exactly opposite to that opinion in terms of we want to know where the outbreaks are so we can avoid going there so we can make uh, informed decisions for ourselves about the risks that we want to take in our lives um and so i think i think really that's the kind of situation where you have um two good arguments uh, that disagree that's the type of situation where you need a court to uh to decide and uh i'm not a lawyer so i don't quite know how to handicap that one um, but it will definitely be interesting to see, you know, you know, that these outbreaks, I mean, they are these community outbreaks anyway, the ones that are happening just out in the regular world, not in a, uh, congregate living facility. Uh, they aren't, they don't have to be very big to get, to get tagged to be in an, an outbreak. Uh, you know, 
three or more people from different households visiting the same location within the same 14-day period. Um, so, I mean, that's a pretty loose standard and a relatively small number of people to qualify as an outbreak. So I, I think um, myself, I haven't been paying as much attention to the outbreak numbers. I think the county probably regrets making outbreaks a trigger for the county. You know, we've, we've, we've set off that trigger for months in a row now when it doesn't really seem to bring about any changes. So it seems like this is a metric that kind of nobody really is. You know, if your alarm is going off constantly, <laughs> maybe your uh, alarm bell is not properly calibrated. I think that's kind of how they feel about the, uh, the community outbreaks, that they're maybe not a good sensitive measure of how much coronavirus is really spreading in the community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the difficulty of this whole thing is that we had no idea what was going to happen here. So no matter what rules you wrote, you know, months ago, the reality is going to change just because this is still a novel coronavirus, even though we have been dealing with it through all of 2020. Yeah, that's right. And I think um, in the public, we can we can be a little forgiving and say, you know, maybe some of the stuff they come up with out of the gate might not be quite perfect and they need to change it. And that's okay. Like, uh, you know, you, you would hope that uh, you would change to changing circumstances and, and adapt and, and be flexible. Uh, and so um, I think, I think generally people have that expectation. Uh, certainly they want a lot of change in the state's um, system that is currently uh, causing everybody to, uh, you know, stare at these numbers all day and night. Mm-hmm. And you kind of teased at it with the outbreak question, but looking back at the San Diego County strategy of trying to slow the spread of the virus, are there any things that you see as things that didn't work, things that were obviously you know properly intentioned but didn't quite get to the means of the end? Because obviously we've had to adjust based on what we've learned from the virus. Do you find some things that you know worked well for the county and things that you know didn't? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think masks are a good example of that. You know, as you recall, when we came into this, they said, you don't need a mask. This thing isn't airborne. You don't really need a mask. Let's conserve all the masks for the healthcare workers who are actually caring for infected patients. They need all of the, the supply. That turned out to not really be very true. Um, and they had to make this distinction between medical grade masks like you would use for uh, treating a COVID patient and face coverings uh, that were all uh, you know, that we've all long ago now learned to, to use and what have you. I think if we could go back and, uh, and, and the county could go back, uh, that they would uh, take a stronger stance on that right out of the gate. Um, I think as well, um, testing, um, I think in the beginning of this, it would have been very nice to be able to test large numbers of people more quickly to find out who was infected. You know, we had a period where, where, where all of the public health agencies in the nation were saying, you know, you don't need to be tested unless you have severe symptoms pretty much qualifying you to be put in the hospital. It would have been very nice in that period to be able to test more people. Um, I think many wish that they might have tried to move a little faster in terms of creating their own tests. Uh, be it at a university or a private lab or what have you. Um, you know, <clears throat> it took quite a while before the FDA was able to approve some of these tests that weren't made by the CDC. We all waited around quite a long time to get the reagents for the C- from the CDC for their tests that they created. Um, I, think, I think people wish that there could have been a push to 
go a little harder toward creating more tests early, although there would have had to been a lot of uh, federal um, cooperation with that. So it would have taken more than just some local organizations in one town or another deciding to do it. It would have had had more uh, buy-in from the FDA. But certainly there could have been more public statements uh, in the early going to uh, ramp up testing more quickly than actually happened. Yeah, and I also feel like one of the things that have really complicated national, statewide, even local conversations with the virus is that this is a function of how many people are in a certain space. And when you consider just the geographic diversity of this nation, this outbreak is going to play out differently in different places. And it's just hard to wrap your brain around how diverse of a country we are. And that's why this isn't this is one pandemic, but in the sense, it's also a ton of little tiny ones that are all unique. Absolutely. You talk to somebody who went through the pandemic in New York, uh, and they're going to have a very different story than somebody who went through it in San Diego, for sure. Um, you know, and all over the country, as you say, that's a, uh, a major factor and one that makes it hard to set national policy on things like testing and mask wearing and what have you. Uh, you know, you have thousands of individual public health departments uh, that all have their own authority to do what they deem best. So, uh, you know, I think coming out of this, uh, there's going to be a, a, a broad discussion about whether we need a more unified national health policy, uh, one that kind of does even better with reporting data quickly. Oftentimes, there have been all of these different data lags, and it's, it's kind of hard to understand in a nation that has largely adopted electronic medical records and electronic test reporting, this stuff needs to be a lot faster. Our leaders need to know what's happening very quickly so they can make decisions on the fly. Uh, and so I really hope that, uh, that we come out of this with a, with a commitment to uh, getting information more quickly and sharing it more broadly. Uh, you know, people really in, in this day and age, they want to see the numbers for themselves. They want to get out their spreadsheet and calculate it for themselves. You wouldn't believe the number of emails I get from people want, wanting my sources uh, for various numbers, which I'm happy to share. And then they want to go, uh, you know, do the numbers themselves. People, uh, people want to, you know, there's a fair amount of a spirit of investigative journalism in, in everybody these days. Mm -hmm, certainly. And uh, as we, you know, get deeper into this outbreak, what are some questions that you hope, you know, in the short term, the next three to four months get answered either journalistically or scientifically? Like, what are the kind of questions that are bouncing around your head that you hope get answered? Yeah, a lot of it has to do with exactly how this virus acts on the body, right? Like exactly what is setting off this um, two-phase illness in some people that is causing this respiratory distress where you see the virus causing inflammation in the kidneys and the, the cardiovascular system, uh, as well as the lungs. And, and you see this uh, all kind of coalesce into a situation where you just can't get enough oxygen into the blood. I think we really uh, probably will start to see uh, some better information. Um, the other thing that we really, really want to know is what are the long-term consequences for folks who have suffered some cardiovascular injury uh, even if they haven't ended up in the hospital, what have you, you know, how long does that cardiovascular injury persist? Um, and and I've, I've talked to a lot of, uh, you know, experts who have said we need at least six months uh, from the time that these folks got infected to really understand what the long-term consequences are. So I think we're going to start 
really seeing some good papers coming out uh, between now and Christmas that start to kind of zero in on what you really are risking when when you when you come down with this disease. Um, you know, you may not die, but you may have cardiovascular injury that lasts quite a while and who knows it might last forever uh, you know that this is a question that we really need to have answered you know and then the other thing it has to do with with vaccines you know obviously we've got a lot of different trials going out there for a lot of different vaccines uh, there's a, a lot of pressure from the white house to get one of these candidates out to the public before the year is out there are certain circumstances where that can happen but you need to have extremely strong evidence of a extremely strong immune response in a large number of people who are, uh, you know, taking these drugs in clinical trials. Uh, and so, um, you know, I, I think, you know, I think that's probably at the top of the list for everybody, right? Just understanding, do any of these viruses, that, uh, I'm sorry, uh, vaccines that they've put together so far, uh, do they have such mind-blowing efficacy that, uh, the, the companies that make them are willing to take the risk and put them out early. Uh, we would really need to see uh, some fantastic evidence there. And you can you can bet that everybody is going to be checking uh, every database, uh, you know, from these clinical trials to make sure that this data is uh, perfectly uh, accurate mm. and trustworthy. Yeah, throughout this entire pandemic, it appears that, you know, it's human nature to want that magic bullet that will finally solve everything. But as we have seen with how the scientific method has been working out, the road to answers is messy. Yes, we sure have. That is the truth. It's a, It's been a long road, and uh, it seems like it's stretching out into the distance further than we can see. Mm-hmm. All right, Paul Sisson, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the San Diego News Fix. It's Tuesday, so listen to the latest episode of Name Drop. Hear the UT's Abby Hamblin and Christy Totten interview Jerry Torres, the founder of City Tacos. Name Drop San Diego is available wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is made possible by subscribers to the San Diego Union Tribune. As we live through this momentous time in history, the truth and facts matter. If you are not yet a subscriber, please go to uniontrib.com slash subscribe. Until next time.